Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here again. So, oh yeah, uh, last time we were talking, I, I wanted to, before I forget, I wanted to bring up um, the issue of people going through benzo withdrawal, um, and they get in a situation where they just can't do anything. Um, I recently had a patient that they, they asked her to do jury duty, and she's in no condition to do jury duty. So yeah. I wrote her a letter saying, you know, excuse her medical reasons, and you know, they they said, well, we need to know what what the problem is. So I, um, I, you know, I, I put uh, what did I put like uh, toxic encephalopathy, uh, yep. um, you know, something like you know, and, and some other things, you know, just which I felt bad. I'm like, I told the patient, I said, don't take anything I'm writing seriously. This is for them. Right. And um, yep. But you know, so so there's like these legal issues, and then also the thing with disability, like you know, people being made to do crazy things that they shouldn't be made to do just to get their disability. Or maybe they're not even getting approved at all. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I went through that process and was denied twice, even at a hearing was denied, because they just don't understand the condition, you know. I mean, that's one of the things I really want to address when I get my nonprofit, you know, really up and running, is creating a legal education program so so lawyers can be educated on this, on how to get disability for people, and also, I mean, down the line, I think it'd be amazing if we could get more recognition even in that, you know, legal sphere so people don't have to, I mean, imagine if somebody could get disability in four to six months with chronic akathisia instead of waiting years. It could really alter the course of their recovery. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, crazy that that's even an issue. Um, somebody had reached out to me and said that she's made to, demonstrate that she can't get into a car or something like that and um oh and i guess God. she has to go through that painful process of showing you know look i'm trying to get in the car and i can and it's killing me and you know and um and, and i and i think she was looking for a doctor uh maybe to to document it somehow you know that that this is um too much to ask the person to do but i'm not really sure like what can a, a general doctor like a general practitioner a family doctor because this person had mentioned something about a forensic psychiatrist. So I, I don't okay. know if, if they're looking for that or if, if any doctor can help a patient with this. I mean, I think the dilemma is, again, you know, akathisia is just a word or just even iatrogenic injuries. I mean, from my experience, and you tell me if this makes any sense to you, is that I think at this point the best course for people looking for help would be to approach it from an iatrogenic perspective. Because it feels to me like a lot of the younger doctors are more aware of the concept of iatrogenesis. That, you know, it's as opposed to, I think the dilemma with akathisia is it's still viewed medically in a very small paradigm as still being predominantly caused by antipsychotics and, you know, maybe some SSRIs, but not really widespread acknowledgement that it could be caused by a host of things. And I think there at least has been some more acknowledgement, at least from my anecdotal experience, with younger doctors um, who seem just to be a little more open to the idea that medications can actually cause issues. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just, I just want to say before we go any further, your, your connection is not as bad as it was last time, but uh, it is kind of, it's not, your connection doesn't seem to be perfect. Like it's, uh, okay, it, hold it's, on. Let me close any windows I have open to see if that helps with the quality. Okay. 
that helped at all. Uh, wait, talk a little bit more. Yep, check, check. One, two, three. Yeah, that might be a little bit better. Okay, we'll see if that helps. Okay, I mean, well, it's not, it's not too bad. It's definitely okay, but it's um, good. Good. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah. So, what, what, what exactly is a uh, forensic psychiatrist? I'd never even heard of that before until until someone would, brought it up. I don't really know, but I would imagine they are trained legally. Maybe they also have a law degree, I would imagine. To, I mean, I've even seen billboards for doctors who are now lawyers around patient harm. Um, but I, I don't even know what a forensic psychiatrist could do in this case unless they're willing to acknowledge that medicines can cause injuries, you know. I would imagine, yeah. you know, the problem I see is that so many times they're just looking at the paradigm of mental illness and not adverse reactions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine like in a, in a disability case, if uh, a doctor, like if I were to say, well, this patient has sustained brain injury from these medications, that they might come back and say, well, show me the brain injury. Show me right. the scan yeah, where's the, test. Yeah, where's the MRI or the CAT scan or whatever it is? You know, I think that that's the dilemma is, you know, a lot of disability or even medical conditions for that matter have at least objective markers. And so much of the iatrogenic injury community, it's much more subjective. You know, you can't get a blood test. You can't get a neurotransmitter test. You know, maybe the best you could hope for is just showing that you have sustained high cortisol, maybe. Um, yeah. You know, but but I think even then, is that even accepted um, as a medical problem, you know? And, yeah. You know, I think that's the dilemma is that, and it's one of the reasons I want so much to, you know, to work with my you know, my research foundation around akathisia is how do we get the medical system to be so much more aware of the term, so much more aware of the concept, so much more aware of how to look for it, how to assess for it. And, you know, I think it's hard to find something you're not looking for. Or, you you know, how, how can I find something I don't even know exists? You know, that's pretty tricky too yeah it it might be helpful to have like um maybe a package of of information for a doctor that wants to help a patient with this that you know say the patient comes in and says you know look at this website and they're going to give you all the uh the the research articles you know the you know textbooks or peer-reviewed journal articles that that support everything and and here's even a sample letter that you can use. And, and, uh, this is the stuff that, you know, maybe like some kind of guidance for a, a doctor that, um, that just wants to write the letter, or do, give the supporting documentation to help them uh, get through their disability case. No, well, I think that's, you know, that, that's one of the things I want to create is as much user friendly programming for doctors as possible including one of the first things I'm going to do is create a series of differential diagnosis short videos on how to find akathisia and how to see akathisia because I think the dilemma is, again, you know, 
so much of iatrogenesis or iatrogenic injuries are mimicking symptoms, meaning they look very similar to other medical conditions or to pre-existing mental health issues. And I think that's where it becomes hard to see it. it you know, I think it's almost doctors have to be willing to, you know, it's ironic. When I taught psychopathology, even in the early 90s, the criteria in the DSM-3R, and I'm sure it's still the same criteria, is the first rule out before you diagnose a mental condition is, is there a substance or a medication causing these symptoms? And unfortunately, it seems like that question has gone from being the first question to the last question. Yeah. You know, if people would be willing to look at the patient in front of them and the changes in front of them in that patient um, and and do a quick timeline to see when the changes from, I think the, the dilemma is that medicine has somehow been convinced that mental health conditions can deteriorate rapidly, which I think most of us have known that have worked in mental health for a long time. Unless some psychosocial stressor occurs, most conditions are relatively, you know, maybe progressive but stable. And when you've got somebody that a week ago was mildly anxious and now is sitting across from you incredibly anxious, and the only thing that's changed has been a dosage change, or an addition of a medicine, you know, I want doctors to consider that before they say, oh, it's just your anxiety getting worse. Or, oh, it's just an emergence of, of this new symptom that relates back to this original diagnosis. And, you know, I think that's where people end up down rabbit holes where doctors, you know, through no, you know, I, I truly believe through no fault of their own because the, the, the knowledge base is so limited. And they're not being trained about this, and they're not being taught about this. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's counterintuitive to say, you know, this drug that, you know, like a benzodiazepine that's supposed to calm a person and sedate them, prevent seizures and uh, prevent anxiety, relax their muscles, and to think that that could cause someone to get up and walk around uncontrollably and and have like this all, all over pain and anxiety and insomnia and just all this whole cluster of symptoms that completely goes against the um, the effect of the medication. I mean, um, it, it's hard to hard for doctors to uh, to put that together. Yeah, I think, and I think honestly, the reality too is that you know doctors go into this profession to help people in part, and to wrap your mind around the fact that you could be giving medicines that your intention is to help. Your intention is to, to help the patient sitting across from you, but to give them a medication that actually not only doesn't help them but harms them is a, no pun intended, but a difficult pill to swallow. Yeah. And, you know, because doctors, you know, I mean, anybody that goes into especially a helping profession wants to feel like they're helping. And the antithesis of that would be harming. And, you know, to be, to feel like they've created scenarios where they're actually harming people would be very hard to, to again, to, to, to digest or to accept, especially yeah. since you know, you know, and you know this as a medical professional yourself, is the majority of information that most doctors are getting in their specialty at this point are coming from pharmaceutical reps, and the oh, reps, yeah, and the reps have one motivation and one motivation only, and that's to sell more of their medicine. 
And, you know, I think, you know, doctors have, you know, again, through no, I believe no fault of their own, have kind of been duped into believing that medicines are predominantly good with very little risk of adverse effects. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, uh, yeah, the drug reps, they're, they're always there. And the drug companies, uh, to some degree, they've infiltrated every level of medical, medical education. You know, they, they fund the conventions. Um, they're, you know, like when you go to a major convention for continuing medical education and you see trusted doctors lecturing to you, um, and I know you can look these things up now, but, you know, in, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, they're, they're lecturing at, a, at an event that's heavily funded by these same companies that want you to prescribe more of their drug. And, and, and the data at the convention is being created by the company. You know, yeah. the, the data is being created by the pharmacy, you know, because the pharmaceutical, I mean, before I had my own personal experience with this, I, I, I think I believed that there somehow was like this third party external source that was looking over all research. And the reality is, is that's not the case. The reality is, is that most research is being funded by the very companies that are trying to get their products to market. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently they don't even release most of it. You know, we, we think we're looking at their research and, you know, everything is out in the open, but apparently until these companies go into, uh, you know, when they go to court and things are discovered, uh, that's when you might really find out like what was happening in the background. But, you know, we, and, we see these predominantly everything you're reading is being written by a public relations person and a marketing person, not a scientist. Yeah, yeah, we see these colorful graphs that, that make it look like their drug is superior, but it's all manipulation, you know, to, you know. Not, well, one of the things that I learned on this journey, too, is that when drug companies do drug trials of competitive drugs, they generally dose the other drugs at higher doses. So it inherently creates a worse side effect profile. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that, and I'm old enough now that the people that I have seen live the longest actually take the least amount of medicine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember there was a funny situation where um, we, we went to this – it looked like a, one of these drug company-funded dinners, you know, which they're pretty common. You know, doctors get invited to these dinners, and, uh, and somebody lectures. It's usually a community doctor that someone you might even know personally and trust they give a lecture, and we all know they're being paid by the company, but, uh, yeah. you know, they give a lecture that's completely favorable for the drug um, in question. But this particular dinner, it was a um, – they were paying the doctors that showed up, and we were being paid to um, to help them with their marketing, to give them feedback for whatever marketing. So it was kind of the same dinner lecture, but, I, I mean, it might have just been a way of them justifying giving us an extra check or something. But uh, yeah. there was this one, this one slide that came up. And uh, the lecturer quickly went through it, and he said, you know, and this shows why this blood pressure medication can help with um, systolic, isolated systolic hypertension. And then he quickly went to the next slide, and one of the doctors raised his hand. He said, can you go back to that slide? And he said, well, okay, and he went back to it. And he said, did you just tell us that you did a study on four rats, four individual rats, and and, uh, and you're presenting that to us as human information? And yeah. um it was true. It was a study of nothing more than four individual rats that they tested and came to the conclusion that the drug can treat uh, this particular condition, and not even yeah. human beings at all. I mean, it was, it was crazy. 
It is, and, and I think you know the thing. The other things you learn is how you know, studies get manipulated. I mean, the Xanax studies, the classic. I mean, it was eight weeks to begin with, and they noticed after four weeks people getting worse, and they rewrote rewrote the study to four weeks. And, oh wow! Yeah, I mean, it's just it's amazing what the FDA allows. You know, it really is amazing what they allow. But you know, I think that. You know, as you and I go on this journey of helping people through this, doctors are our allies. The more doctors that we can get to understand and believe and support this idea, the better for everyone involved. And, you know, as I said earlier, I believe doctors want to help people. That's why they went into the profession in part. And I believe that, uh, you know, that, the more allies we can have in this fight, the better. And that's, I think, a struggle with our community. The community has a tendency to lash out at that. You know, we want it to be as much of a, a, a you know, cooperative relationship as possible. Um, what are you seeing in your patients? Um, well, you know, oh, with patients who are tapering or withdrawal from benzodiazepines? Yeah. Um, well, a lot of, uh, for actually, that's something interesting to bring up. Um, something that, that I wasn't really aware of and, and became very much aware of with, with some patients. And, and the funny thing is, it seems like when something new comes up for something that's new to me, suddenly everybody in, online in the forums are discussing it, which was interesting. But, um, the issue of, uh, histamine sensitivity is a, a thing that, you know, and it seems to be a huge thing. It seems to be a, a major issue, um, maybe even encompassing more than just allergy symptoms. But um, apparently a person in withdrawal can become, become very sensitive to histamine. You know, when you think of like an allergy medication being an antihistamine to treat allergies, yep. uh, a histamine is a substance that gives a person allergy symptoms. And, you know, there's foods that have more histamine than other foods. There's foods that lead to uh, release of histamine. And so... Um, you know, people just out of the blue, they develop allergies and they don't know what they're allergic to and they never had allergies before. And and it, it gets to be extremely uncomfortable. And apparently the, the solution is, you know, there's some supplements that might help. There's uh, dietary restrictions. And it, yeah, it's it's a, um, but one of the things that I read about was that it can cause gastrointestinal upset. So I was wondering, like, how much overlap is there with that? Like the benzo withdrawal causing the benzo belly symptoms. You know, I think, the, it, I think uh, it's fun. I mean, when I went through one of my two withdrawals, and this was tapering, I would wake up every morning and bottle because I was so full of histamine, I think, and just nauseous and dizzy. And because I think that, I think there is, you know, I look at a lot of the injuries being neuroinflammation and histamine must play a role in that. And I, you know, I also think that there is so, you know, I've seen some recent studies that are talking about an immune, you know, function part of this withdrawal period. And it would make sense to me. I think that's why people get all these, you know, bizarre um, secondary conditions. I think it's why, um, you know, I think it's why it could. You know, 
people, like you said, benzo belly and other inflammation and, um, you know, people get food sensitivities is a big part of this too. And, yeah. you know, cause I think again, you know, I think our neurotransmitters are everything, right? I mean, they're everywhere in our body and they control just about everything. And when you create, you know, and I think we also know much more modern neuroscience is starting just to look at the fact, the fact that we don't really have separate brain systems. Everything is interconnected and one change in one system can create a cascade in other systems, you know, systems. And I think it's again this idea that, you know, there's an immuno inflammation response, I think. There is a inflammatory response. There is, um, you know, a down regulation problem. I think it's a kind of a combination of things that when you alter major neurotransmission systems in the body, you get a cascade of events in all different systems in the body that might even not seem connected to our neurology per se. Yeah. 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 So it's, um, you know, there's some supplements that they say can, can help with the, uh, the histamine thing. I, I know one of them, one of them is DAO. Are you, have you, are you familiar with that? Have you used that or no? What's the, what is that? that? Uh, let me, let me look it up again. It's a, um, uh, where is it? Uh, diamine oxidase. Okay. It's like an enzyme, uh, that helps break down food. Apparently it has like different uses in helping people break down. It helps break down histamine rich foods. Okay. So that, that was one that came up and I, I don't know if anybody definitely has tried it who's giving me any feedback on it or anything. Um, there's another one, low-dose lithium. Somebody had recommended that to a patient. Like the lithium orotate? Yeah, that's it. That's it, yeah. Yeah, the lithium orotate. I mean, I think the lithium orotate can have a role, but again, I think it's like anything, you know, less is more usually. Um, and I think also the tricky thing is, is, is in this, you know, when you're talking about iatrogenic injuries, there's a wide range of symptoms. And there's also a wide range of intensities. And, you know, I think that's part of the confound too. But, I mean, do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I'd read about it, that he, I guess he, he went to Russia or something for some he kind of... He went to Russia. Well, now, well, now his daughter, who's pretty involved in, you know, in, with him... Posted something that they have figured out how to cure atrophy, and their recommendations are: first is just low dose mirtazapine, which is already an accepted treatment for atrophy. And then the second, that's, Rem, that's Remron, right? That's Remron. Remron, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the second uh, recommendation that I found interesting, because I had a personal experience with it, where it did help me a little bit, was the use of Dilaudid. Huh. And when I had my prostate cancer, they gave me Dilaudid once at the hospital, and it actually reduced the akathisia. But I can't see how it would treat akathisia. I could see how it would cover it. I can't see how it would solve it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's something for us to explore. And also, good luck finding a doctor to give you Dilaudid for akathisia. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that's not going to happen in this country. But and then the other thing that I'm really curious about, and I've thought about it because it makes sense, and it's something I do believe has helped my own personal recovery from my injury, is a low-carb ketogenic diet. 
that I think, because to me, the core of so much iatrogenesis, I believe, neurochemically, is from glutamate excitotoxicity. That, you know, there's a, you know, negative feedback loop where the body's just creating too much glutamate. And that, to me, seems to be what causes the problem. So then that's why one of the things I want to study are, are things that are natural glutamate, like, sponges or things that remove glutamate from the body because I think that is another potential source of research or you know place of research to see if because you know I know in the paper that you read that I sent you you know the two things that I talked about in the treatment part one is the dipyridamol that we've spoken about which is that antiplatelet drug that I want to do a study on that I want to see if because that was used in restless leg studies and they found that when they used the dipyridamol, it reduced the subjective complaints of the RLS. Well, if we could re- you know, reduce the subjective complaints of akathisia, then the objective complaints would go away. And oh, so, yeah. you know, I'm curious, but, but what, but what the, aden- I mean, what the, uh, dipyridamol does is it, it raises adenosine, which I think naturally then re- reduces glutamate. And that's how it works. But the study I referenced was using it for ischemic brain injuries, I think. And the thing that I'm really curious about is, is are there glutamate scavengers we can use to naturally reduce the body's glutamate? Because a lot of people that have already, you know, believed that glutamate was the problem have tried to use glutamate antagonists, but they don't work. And I think they don't work is because it's, it's too much of an antagonist. It, it, it's not really working with the body's natural chemistry. It's more suppressing the body's chemistry. Whereas I'm more interested yeah. in finding ways to use the body's natural chemistry to remove the substance. Um, and you, you know, so those are other things that I'm curious in researching. Is are there things that we can do that specifically target the glutamate, GABA, adenosine, uh, you know, system in our brain, but another interesting thing is one of the more I would say scholarly people I'm reading on the subject talks about, I might be pronouncing the word wrong, but it's like heteromers or something, or heteromers or something, which seems to be he's arguing that we've always thought of neurotransmission systems as being independent. You have the serotonin system, the dopamine system, and the noradrenaline system, the GABA system, things like that. But what he's arguing is that systems create subsystems within themselves so that you can have a dopamine and adenosine subsystem, that they are actually one system interacting. And because I think that, you know, traditional views of, you know, on akathisia have, have argued that dopamine is the primary neural pathway that causes the movement because I'm because I know that, that dopamine and uh, the striatum have a lot of overlap in terms of movement and controlling the body's movement. But dopamine-induced movement, to me, always felt more like, like tardive dyskinesia, where it's more like a spasmy, uncontrolled movement, yeah. you know, as, a, as opposed to akathisia, where the movement is a mix of volition and non-control. And the also thing is that 
in primary movement disorders like dystonia and tardive dyskinesia, it's the movement that then causes the distress. Whereas with akathisia, it's the distress that causes the movement. Yeah. And so they're actually, you know, I think it's a directional problem where the tardive dyskinesia and the dystonia seem like I could, you know, believe are predominantly dopaminergic in origin. Whereas I think akathisia is much more complicated. Where you have the dopaminergic part of it, which is the movement, but the subjective distress feels much more like a glutamate excitotoxicity reaction where you feel like your body is just hyper, you know, hypercharged, hyperactive, hyper aroused. And so, I, you know, what I want to study is are there ways that we can alter that system and give people relief without causing them, you know, dependency on things or more, um, iatrogenic, you know, injury. Cause I think the tricky thing is how do we address this without, you know, maybe crossing the blood brain barrier or without, you know, specifically target neurotransmission systems? Because once the neurotransmission systems are hypersensitized, it seems like anything that is introduced can have unpredictable outcomes. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I, I know that, you know, with, with um, you know, when you find a, uh, like a prescription drug uh, that, that seems like it might address an issue, and then you propose that to a patient, you know, for example, um, the one mentioned, I think, pentoxifilin, um, that, that uh, you know, to show that to a patient, say, you know, this might help you, and then, uh, you know, the first thing a, a patient in benzo withdrawal is going to do is go right to the side effects and say, let me look at what this can do to yep. me. Yep. And um, then they ask you, have you seen any good results with anyone else? Well, no, because no one else has <laughs> no tried. tried it yet. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, nobody wants to be the, the guinea pig. And um, so, yes, it's hard to get started with. I mean, you know, natural things are a lot easier to introduce and say, you know, if you eat less of this food, more of that food, maybe a supplement. Um, but, yeah, we got to. It's difficult to convince someone. Then you have that feeling like, well, what if they're right? What if they do have all those side effects and nothing helps? Well, I think that it it becomes one of the, and it's a, you know, it's a dual interactive kind of bi-directional interaction between medical doctors and patients, which is we're so scared to take things, understandably. and at the same time, like you said, people want to see if other people have had success. But we're all guinea pigs in this. And the only yeah. way um, that we can ensure progress is to test things. And, you know, I think that what's hard is, though, and it's one of the things I talk about with the people I work with, is that we're all unique in this, you know, that we all uh, – have individual paths, and that's why no two people are the same. And that's what you, I would imagine as a doctor is frustrating. Is that yeah. you know I can give four patients the same intervention, the same treatment, and I get four completely unique responses, which then from you know a clinician doesn't help me then tailor future responses to my clients because I can't predict what kind of outcomes I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
You know, there's a there's a drug. I think I might have mentioned this to you uh, before. Campril, which the generic is acamprosate. Okay. And, and it's you. It's used for uh, alcohol treatment, and it's something I've been intrigued with thinking, like, this could really, you know, on paper it looks perfect. It looks like it, it just addresses everything probably, maybe that, that might help people. And when you look for information, you, you'll find, um, you know, if you Google it, you'll find a person here and there has proposed it, and then other people say, like, well, no, we have no experience in it. I saw, like, one forum where a patient described it perfectly, you know, how, how this drug might help. And it was a bunch of psychiatrists, and first they, they misunderstood his question, and then when they figured out what he was talking about, one guy said, well, it's a pretty safe medication. You know, I'd be willing, you know, for a motivated patient to, to try it out. But I, I don't know if anyone's ever tried this, but acamprosate reduces glutamate surge. Uh, it, I think it enhances GABA signaling. Uh, it's an NMDA uh, receptor blocker. Yep. Um, and uh, it's also, and now I'm looking here, it says, I, I know it's been used to control uh, tinnitus or tinnitus. Yep. Um, which which, which it, has a big foundation glutamate. Yeah, and it works on spasms of the tensor tympani muscle. Yep. Um, so when you read through all this stuff that, that acamprosate does, it's like, wow, that, that seems to match up everything we need. But then it doesn't seem like anyone has ever tried it. And, and you know, who wants to be the first person to try it? Yeah, I think that's the scary thing, but I think at the same time, you know, it, it, these are the things I'm looking for that I want to do research on, you know, to see if, you know, if something like that, because it specifically, you know, reduces the NMDA glutamate receptors, you know, responding, you know, will that allow, uh, a reduction in symptoms, you know? And, you know, withdrawal from alcohol, just like withdrawal from benzos, induces a surge in glutamate. And yeah. if something can reduce glutamate, I'm curious. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think that that's another potential, you know, imagine we do a study with diperidamol and, you know, acamprosate and then, you know, placebo and see what we find. Cause yeah, I think yeah. There are well, a lot. About, uh, yeah, with the camprosate, it, the uh, dosage is really unusual. It's a 333 milligram tablets. And That's the, a very the standard, <laughs> Yeah, and the standard dosage is um, for someone taking it for alcohol uh, or for any other off-label reason, the standard dosage is six tablets a day. You take two tablets three times a day, which offers some flexibility. You could, you know, you could introduce it at a, a half a tablet a day or one tablet a day just to start out and make sure that there's no... Uh, sensitivity or adverse reactions to it. And it says it has a kind of paradoxical effect, which is the lower doses do one thing. It says an enhanced receptor activation, while higher amounts inhibit. So I wonder almost if small doses, because one of the things that I'm looking at is a a supplement that I've started taking the last couple of weeks um, that does reduce glutamate. It's helping my symptoms. And it does it by washing it out, by basically binding to it and washing it out. Um, because I think that it makes sense to me. Because alcohol withdrawal and benzo withdrawal are very similar. And yeah. 
you know, if something can reduce excitotoxicity, I think it's a gift. I mean, I think. Do you, I wonder if if any is this something that's used just in like a detox to get you off the medicine, or is it something that people take long term for abstinence? Uh, it apparently, can be taken long term, and at least in the literature, it says that there's no withdrawal syndrome from it. But um, but yeah, I think it it would be used. Uh, it's af- it's definitely used after a person has stopped drinking. You know, someone who quits drinking cold turkey and then they're having withdrawal symptoms. It would be used to. Uh, I guess stabilize them and, and reduce withdrawal symptoms. Uh, you know, maybe when they're in a detox situation and they stop drinking suddenly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's not for, it's not like naltrexone where they can take it while they drink and, um, right. reduce. But, uh, and, and I don't think it's used very often. I don't think it's considered to be like very successful for alcohol treatment. Um, and, and why one of those things where, and why do you think that is? Like, is it it's just not effective, or that they're judging it on relapse, or? Uh, no, I think it's um, you know, when they in alcohol detox, they use benzos to to right, calm the person down. to get people down, off so. alcohol, exactly, to, to reduce yeah. the seizure issues too. Yeah, so if the benzo is working effectively short term for that, you know, why throw in an extra drug? Uh, you know, that's not necessarily going to add anything to that. So you know, it might be. You know, maybe it's a uh, a medication looking for a use that, that it didn't really find its use in alcohol like, treatment. Like Viagra. Yeah. It's also saying that uh, it's got a long half-life, so that might allow it to be more stable in the blood system. I mean, these are things I want to study. You know, these are the things that I want to get people to give me lots of money so we can see if this is something that is viable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, um, I want to, and you know, again, I just want to thank you, Dr. Leeds, just so much for your own work in this area because it's just so nice to have medical professionals take such an interest in helping this population. Thank you, thank you, and yeah, just uh, yeah, I want to finish up because um, now, but yeah, let tell me, like, can you tell? Is it too soon, or can you tell us a little bit about the um, the the organization that you're forming, the nonprofit? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so. It's called the Institute for Acathesia Research and Prevention. And we really have, uh, you know, the idea is going to be to, you know, well, here's the mission. Our mission is to create medical consensus and public awareness of and about the term medication-induced acathesia. I want to create uh, an educational video series for doctors and pharmacists and therapists to better understand how to differentially diagnose acathesia. I am in talks now with a couple colleagues about taking what I wrote in my chapter and submitting it to the DSM-TR committee for hopefully consideration for the next update in the manual around medication-induced acathesia. As we've spoken extensively, you know, today I want to create research around this, you know, to test out some of the things that you and I have even discussed to see if they would be viable uh, treatment options for people. I want to design a comprehensive disability program that combines both legal ed education so lawyers can you know, argue more effectively in court to get people disability for this. And I'd love to have a, you know, a legal intern program, you know, helping social service people or people with social service benefits, you know, to try to 
secure more funding and secure more individual disability type benefits for people. I want to create an intern program uh, for MSWs and psychologists and maybe someday for, for doctors. So they're much more aware of iatrogenic injuries and activities specifically. And then ultimately I want to develop a, an improved diagnostic rating scale um, to be used in clinical practice so doctors have a much more effective way of discovering and finding activation. Because as I've said, doctors want to help. I just want to help them be able to help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think even in the hospitals, I mean, the, the benzos are being used kind of recklessly and indiscriminately. And I, I don't think the nurses and doctors are all uh, up to date with the fact that the literature has been updated just two years ago, just in 2020, that these things are a lot more dangerous than they probably think they are. A lot more. And and, and, and it's hard because, as I said, doctors don't want to harm patients. They want to help patients. And And the thing with benzos, is that they can give, uh, you know, an ad of and to 10 people, and you're going to get a fair amount of them are going to have good responses, especially if they haven't taken it before and be more relaxed. You know, the dilemma is, is when you give an ad of and to somebody and they have a paradoxical reaction, do you identify it as a paradoxical reaction, or do you misdiagnose it as an emergence of another illness or a different illness? Yeah, and yeah, actually... I have a patient that goes through that every time he ends up in the hospital that it almost seems like they delete his uh, benzo. We call it an allergy. I mean, whether it's actually an allergy, but, you know, he has benzo allergy on his allergy list. And it seems to get deleted out of the system, almost like they're determined to give him, you know, they always go right to Ativan and he becomes delirious and combative. Uh, and when they give know, it and then, yeah, and then he start, and then they give him more and then they give him. Haldol or Seroquel, you know, they just, it just keeps escalating where they give him one thing after another until he's completely knocked out. And then they say, well, you know, he's obviously has advanced dementia. And I'm like, no, you just caused this. Uh, you know, let, let it wash out of the system for a few days and, and he'll turn into a whole different person, which he always does. It's just scary. <laughs> I mean, it's one yeah, of these. I mean, this is. Yeah, with the, you know, with the hospital system, you know, the primary care doctor doesn't have a lot of control once a person ends up in the hospital. Yeah, their, their doctors take over. Yep. And again, they just there's such a paradigm where they aren't, they never consider is anything they're doing creating outcomes like this. You know, they see him combative and out of control, and they think, oh, he's he's got agitated depression or psychomotor agitation or you know, they never say, wow, is it from the Ativan? Yeah. Yeah. And then with each change of shift and a new nurse, new doctor comes in and then and they, they start back making a square one again. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We've even had uh, this particular patient. He's been called an alcoholic. He's been called demented. Uh, you know, just things are all untrue and all, um, due to the same, uh, repeated, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult because, um, you know, they, they, uh, they're, they just seem determined to use this collection of drugs. You know, the, specifically, it seems like at least in our local hospital system, they, they like um, Ativan, Haldol, and Seroquel. Yeah, Haldol yes. being like one of the worst things you can give a person. Oh, I know. They do it anytime anybody's agitated. Yeah. And Haldol's a powerful medicine. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, 
So anyway, yeah, so, so as far as, uh, what, tell me the name again of, of the, the foundation. It's called the Institute for Akathisia Research and Prevention, and we'll have a website active in the next month. Okay, great, great. Yes, so we'll, I'll follow up and, you know, I'll, I'll update the show notes to, you know, to the website when you're ready. Awesome. And, um, yeah, and definitely people should look out for that, and uh, um, uh, that's going to be an incredible resource, I mean, for, for doctors and patients and people that really need help with these these things. And be careful, because I'm going to ask you to help me, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's, what I, that's one of my favorite things to do. Awesome, awesome. It's such a pleasure getting to talk to you and just have you, you know, as being part of my life, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Such a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, so now I got the podcast part taken care of. I can edit around that. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, you know, as I keep getting stuff, I'll keep sending it to you and let's plan on maybe touching base next month. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. How's your summer? Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, just you know, everybody's just doing their thing and we're seeing patients. I, I just talked to my uh my cousin this morning. It was funny. I was proposing some ideas to him last night. He he's like an entrepreneur and he has a, a marijuana dispensary in, in Maryland, but he's opening like he just wants to keep opening stuff and buying properties and opening facilities. But his new thing, he came back to me when I texted him. He said, what do you know about ketamine? And I said, well, ketamine is great in some situations. And, yep. you know, I told him what I know about it. And we talked this morning and he's, he wants to open up ketamine infusion clinics. And, um, yes, yeah, so he, he might open, open a thing here, but yeah, he was really interested in the, uh, the topic of benzo withdrawal and, different ways to treat that but uh yeah he, he's like a great person to have involved in. i mean as long as there's a way that he can make money from it he'll, he'll get involved in it yeah i mean well you know connect him with me because i'm curious i want to make a supplement that will work i think there are things that we could use that will help people you know yeah that, that I, yeah that would be great um oh, there was another supplement what's that other supplement it was i i just had it on my screen i was going to mention it to you um uh, quercetin. Oh, okay. Q. Yep. I mean, anything like, this quercetin is basically an anti-inflammatory, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's for, it's a mast cell stabilizer anti-inflammatory. Because I think mast cells could be a part of this too. You know, I think there is an, you know, an allergic immune response to this. But we don't, we know so little yet, you know. We really understand this so in its infancy. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, a supplement would be great. I mean that that probably is not even a hard thing to put together. You find like a supplement company that can be flexible and put together the ingredients you want. Yep. I mean I think that's what that's next. <laughs> yeah. So well again, it's such a pleasure getting to talk to you. It really is. And find somebody that's passionate about this also. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Thank you. Well, keep me posted, and I will for sure, you know, reach out when I get back to Florida. And I'll be leaving Kansas City in three weeks. So. Oh, okay. Okay, yes, yeah, so I'll talk to you soon then. Excellent. Have a great day, Mark. Oh, you too. Thank you. Thanks. All right. okay, bye. Oh, bye. Bye.